Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning, y'all. Did I do it right? No, didn't work. Did it translate? No, didn't work. So it is such a joy to be with I tried, I don't know. It is such a joy to be with you um, this morning. You're right, we did do a 34-hour commute to get here. We arrived yesterday, we leave tomorrow. No, I'm joking, we didn't, we didn't, we're not doing that. But I just want to take a moment to introduce you to my wife. She's in the corner. Just, Caitlin, just stand up. This is like, she's the best member of the Barnes family. She's the girl of my dreams. And um, she's my... My champion, and uh, I love you very much. So thank you for supporting me this morning. It is a real joy and a privilege to be with you. I, I love preaching the Word of God. And to Benji and to Jen, thank you so much for the warm invitation of uh, allowing us to come in and, and share in some of your journey and what God's doing here, not only in Encinitas, but in San Diego as a whole. I believe that God's doing something beautiful with your church that's only just beginning, and that there's going to be a move of God, God's Spirit pouring out across San Diego like we haven't seen in generations because of your obedience, but also because of your humility. And uh, one of the things that uh, has just struck me by engaging with some of you over the last few days and coming in this morning is just how kind and how welcoming everyone is. And uh, I believe that God's going to use kind and humble and faithful and obedient people to, to change not only San Diego, but California and your nation. So bless you. Uh, I'm so excited to see what God does amongst you all. So I am a father of two beautiful boys. I should have a picture that comes up, has come up. There's our boys. Um, that's uh, Caitlin, myself. That's little Judah Zion. He is just about to turn seven. We've got Caleb Reed, who is our wild child, like just crazy, um, but so much fun. And he has just turned four, and they are back at home with granny and grandpa. They are camping at the moment and having a ton of fun. So that's us. That's the Barneses, and we're here with you this morning. We're going to pick up in where we left off as a community, looking at the series in the book of Mark, uh, where we are asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I love that question so much. Who is Jesus? In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has just sent out his disciples and they've gone to do a whole bunch of stuff. He's commissioned them for ministry. He sent them out. And Mark chapter, chapter 6, verse 30, which is where we pick up from in your, seri- in your series, we read, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So these apostles, they've gone out. They've done a bunch of cool things. They come back. They're like, Jesus, guess what we've done? We've done this. We've taught this. This person got healed. This. And they're telling Jesus about all the Christian activity that they've been doing. And then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So the apostles come, they're they're telling Jesus about all this activity, all of this ministry, all of this cool momentum that's been gathering, and Jesus is just like, hey, hang on, come with me by yourself and get some rest. Just this, this invitation of, Come into my presence and get some rest. 
What I see here is Jesus is so much more concerned with us being with him than he is about the things that we do for him. The priority of Jesus is for us to get into his presence, to come with him by yourself and get some rest. This beautiful invitation in the midst of activity. If you fast forward a few verses later in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, that Jesus has now fed 5,000 people. There's been a whole bunch of more activity and momentum and just hype. And, and, and it says in verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So what we have in the first little portion here is this invitation of Jesus, come, be with me and find some rest. And then Jesus models for us what it looks like to accept his invitation as he goes into the Father's presence and gets some rest. Come, be with me, this invitation. And then a model of Jesus removing himself, getting into the presence of his Father and finding some rest. Now, my intention today as we look at these two passages and actually consider the question, who is Jesus? My, my desire is that we would be able to cultivate within all of us a desire to go and be with Jesus. We know that we want to live the way of Jesus here at Light Church. We want to be with Jesus. We want to become like Jesus. And we want to go off and do the very things that Jesus did. But we have to start with being with him first. We want to be with him. And Jesus models for us what it looks like to be with the Father as it says he goes up on a mountainside to pray. See, because I don't believe that we can actually answer the question, who is Jesus, and find the right answer if we are concentrating on intellectual ideas. We cannot know about Jesus if we don't encounter Jesus. You see, it's not enough to just know about Jesus. We have to have an experience with him so that we can have a relationship with him. You see, I don't want to just know about Caitlin. I want to experience her. I want to be in her presence. I want to enjoy intimacy with her. And Jesus models for us how we do that when we step into his presence and when we pray. Now, I've got another picture that's coming up. We've got another member of our family. Her name is Shelby. Shelby is a, uh, an Instagram-worthy dog. Like, let's just be honest. She is, like, exquisite. That's when she's still a puppy, by the way. She's, like, much bigger than that right now. But Judah, who's in the bath, just smiling away, uh, Judah and Shelby have the most beautiful relationship. They, they, she just wants to be with him all of the time. If, he, if he's inside the house and she's outside the house, she'll try to break through windows. As you see, she's really strong. She has broken through windows. She will eat through doors. She has eaten through doors. She just wants to get into his presence all of the time. He absolutely loves her. He adores her. They cuddle. They spend all day. If he's playing basketball in the driveway, she's sitting and she's watching him. They, they absolutely love each other. The thing with Shelby is that uh, she, she's actually quite, quite a clever dog because every night when we tell our boys, okay, guys, time to brush your teeth, we're going to bed now, uh, Shelby will make a beeline for Judah's bedroom and hide under his bed. 
because she knows she's worked out, okay, brushing teeth means bedtime and I need to not be separated from this dude. So she gets into his bedroom, <laughs> hides under his bed, and she's humongous. So she thinks we can't see her, but like we walk into the bedroom and we just see her tail like sticking out from underneath the bottom of the bed. And then he's like, Shelby, and then just the tail is like wagging around, like, get out, you know, get, get out. But Shelby's just so desperate to be in Judah's presence. What I find so interesting about that is that Judah loved Shelby first. Like, he loved her before she loved him. Like, the moment he desired her, he wanted her, he chose her, he received her, he, she, is her she is his dog. He, she, he loved, his love was poured out upon her first. And as a response to his love, Shelby is so desperate to be in his presence. Do you know that God loves you first? That he absolutely desires to be in your presence? In, John, in 1 John verse 4, we, we read, we love because he first loved us. In Ephesians 1, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And our desire, friends, to be with Jesus, to be in his presence, uh, to pray or to read the Bible. If I could preach three Sundays in a row, I'd preach on prayer, reading the Bible, and worship. But I've but I got one Sunday, so I'm going to hit prayer. And, and it's just like, if we, God wants to be, for us to be in his presence. He wants us to step into intimacy and relationship with him when we pray. And us wanting to be in his presence is actually motivated by this revelation of just how much God loves us. That, God, that Jesus loves you. And so today as we look at this uh, idea of how can we be with Jesus, how can we know him, uh, I want to look at how we do that when we pray. Now, when we consider the topic of prayer, a lot of emotions can rise up within uh, all of us. You know, it could just be, oh my gosh, another pastor preaching on prayer, like I've heard about prayer before, this is uh, kind of, you know, I've got it, not another one on prayer. For some, it might be, well, you know, um, I feel a little bit, little bit guilty about prayer because I don't pray enough. For some, it might be this fear that somebody's actually going to ask me to pray aloud, like that's really terrifying. Uh, for some, uh, it might be this desire, like I really want to get better at prayer, like I recognize the importance, I just don't know how, I just don't know where to start. And for some of us, it might just be, man, prayer's really boring and I've got other things to do. Now, I personally have felt all of these emotions uh, over the course of my life. Uh, I remember arriving at community group, which is like our equivalent of your midweek gatherings, uh, early on in our marriage and saying to Caitlin, if I get asked to pray aloud, you better like rise up and perform your wifely duty and step in and start praying because I ain't praying aloud in front of anyone. Like, <laughs> I have definitely felt guilt over seasons where I haven't prayed enough. Um, I have definitely felt the desire to get deeper and better at my relationship with Jesus, knowing that in order to do that, I needed to get into his presence and talk with him and pray, but to find that when I did pray, all I ever did was ask him for stuff, and I know that any relationship where you're just making requests of the other person all of the time would not really be a relationship that I personally would want to be a part of. So, like, kind of my shopping list towards the sky. 
But here's the thing. In my prayer life, what, what was happening is I was starting off at the wrong place. I was starting with me. I was starting because I wanted to get something out of prayer. I wanted to be better at prayer, or I wanted my prayer, prayers to be answered. I wanted prayer for me. But here's the thing. Prayer is not something we have to do. Prayer is something we get to do. Corey Russell, in his beautiful book on prayer, he says, our church buildings are growing larger, but our impact on culture is growing smaller. Our children and teens are growing up in what many are calling a post-Christian, uh, what many, sorry, in what many are beginning to call a, Christ, a post-Christian society, and we are losing the war for their souls. Why is this? We have neglected the place of prayer in our personal lives and ministries. The power of the Holy Spirit has been replaced with marketing strategies and conferences, false growth that masks our true barrenness. In the face of the rising tide of godlessness, we have tried everything but the one thing that is necessary, prayer. And I think we would all agree that prayer is really important. Charles Spurgeon, the man who's known as the Prince of Preachers, he's once famously said he would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. Because prayer, he knew and we know, is the secret to unlocking the kingdom of God in your life. If you want to unlock the kingdom of God here in San Diego as it is in heaven, I believe that it's going to happen when regular men and women like you and me get on our knees and we pray. Prayer is our highest calling, it is our greatest weapon, it is our deepest joy, yet so few of us actually pray. So let's ask the question, what is prayer? At its core, prayer is just simply speaking to God. Prayer is living in this constant state of awareness that I am walking under the open ear of heaven. Like God's ear is towards me. And he's listening. And when we speak to God with this realization that his ear is towards us and that he's listening to us, then everything changes. What happens when we pray? Well, we're drawn into deeper intimacy with the Father. We get protected from pride. We get spurred on to greater levels of holiness. We get anointed with power. We are unified with the body. We are trained as kings and priests in this kingdom, and we start to be trained as rulers on earth, advancing his kingdom. And most importantly, here's the big one, is that we get to encounter Jesus. We encounter Jesus. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, we read, this is the prophet Isaiah here in the Old Testament. He's prophesying of a day, he's prophesying of you and me, of the day where, where, where Jesus' church will be established on earth and what will that church look like. And, and, and through the prophet Isaiah, God says, I will bring them to my holy mountain in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to bring my people to Jesus and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. And he goes on to say, because my temple, my gathered people, the people of God, you and me, Light Church, we are called, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
When Isaiah prophesies this, he, he prophesies of a day when God would bring his people into the realities of an encounter with Jesus through prayer, and he will make us joyful there. Their prayer, their prayer will bring us into the presence of Jesus where we turn our eyes upon him and the world grows strangely dim and there is joy found in that place. In this verse, God calls his church a house of prayer. What I find so interesting is he doesn't call it a house of evangelism or a house of prophecy or a house of healing or a house of ministry. Now, don't get, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm all about like evangelism and prophecy and healing and, and ministry. That's, that's my game. That's my, that's, I'm, I'm all about all of those things. I believe God wants all of that. But what is so interesting to me is that when God starts talking and prophesying through the prophet Isaiah about his future church, he calls you and me a house of prayer. He's saying yeah, when, he, when God establishes a people, when he establishes the church, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And so one of the defining things about our collectiveness as a group of people is and should be prayer. The presence of God in our midst as we open up ourselves to intimacy with him. Now, many of us have been you know, found guilty in thinking that prayer is only for a handful of loud men and women who either sit in the front row or in the back row, but we need to change our mindsets around what prayer is and who prayer is for, because prayer should become the daily reality of every single follower of Jesus. Because at the heart of it, prayer is, at the heart of prayer, there is this, this revelation of the nearness of God. That God wants to be near to us. God wants to be near to you. And nearness, God's nearness to you, to me, to our community, has been the deepest longing of his heart since the beginning of time. We see this all throughout the scriptures. If you open up your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible, we see that, that God, the creator, creates Adam. He creates humanity. And then it says that God and Adam walked together in the garden in the cool of the day, this picture of nearness and intimacy between God and humanity. And then he demonstrates his heart and pursuits of nearness as he shows us the, the himself in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then we get into the New Testament and he sends himself, he sends Jesus to come and be with us, to come and be near to us. And then, and then Jesus, he, he, after Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit who comes in. He wants to be so near to us that he locates himself in our hearts. We see this all throughout the New Testament church of which we're a part of where the Spirit of God comes. He doesn't just want to be in this room with us. He wants to be in your very being. That is how much God wants to be near to you. He wants to indwell in our hearts. And then if that's not enough, we are told that Jesus is going to come back for us again, pursuing us, coming after us, wanting to be near us. God wants to be near us. And now for you and me, the, 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 through Christ, this veil of separation, which was sin, which would separate humanity and, and God has been completely been removed through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And all believers, including you and me, are invited to draw near to God. Thank you. 
We can stand in the very presence of God. We can talk to Him. We can ask Him for things. We can find our identity in His presence, and we can find rest. But there are some challenges to this, because prayer is really simple. It's talking to God, but it's also really difficult, because there are some obstacles that we find in our, in our way. Theologian A.W. Tozer, he says, there is no greater hindrance to a life of prayer than wrong thoughts about God. The heaviest obligation laying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concepts of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. I think the reason that prayer is so few and far between in the Christian church is because we have wrong thoughts about God. I believe that there is so little prayer because our view of God is actually so small. And that's why I love this series that you're doing. Who is Jesus? Who is God? Because if we can rightly frame who Jesus is, I believe we'll start to see prayer and worship erupt across our community. So let me tell you who God is. God is glorious. He is beautiful, and He is good, and He cannot be improved upon. Yet so few of us are connected to this reality. And our low view of God just so often manifests itself in our prayer lives. Just like Israel throughout the Old Testament, we fail to recognize that God is a great King who is worthy of all of our time and our energy and our resources and our worship. This is why developing a strong and a, a faithful life of prayer actually begins with changing our thoughts about who God is. In Luke chapter 11, after spending years observing Jesus, the disciples, they, they, they're, they've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen Jesus preach amazing sermons. They've seen Jesus do incredible things. They've seen Jesus change their own personal lives. And after watching their... Jesus and his interactions with the Father, the disciples concluded that the secret to all of Jesus' life and ministry and authority lay in how he prayed. And so they come up to him and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. It's quite interesting because they don't say, Jesus, teach us to preach a killer sermon or Jesus, teach us how to do this miracle. They come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And the first thing that Jesus told them to do was to forget about their shopping lists of needs up towards the heavens, and instead, in the very opening of the Lord's Prayer, which is this model prayer that Jesus gives for us and how we can pray, Jesus highlights for the apostles and for you and me the importance of connecting with a person, and that person is the Father. He just simply says, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. The source and foundation of all faith and intimacy and encounter in prayer is found in the true revelation that God is our Father. The Bible is filled with revelation of God's nature and character. And, and as you read, but the, over and over again, we get told and it gets revealed to us that God is our Father. And what does that mean? Well, as you go through the scriptures and you look at the nature and the character of God, we get told that he is merciful, 
that he's long-suffering, that he's patient and faithful and compassionate, that he's jealous, he's an all-consuming fire, that he is love. Like God is not just loving, he, because loving is an action, he is love itself. He's rich to all who call upon him, not just in provision, but also in generosity. He's overflowing with the abundance towards those who call out upon him. He's kind, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's present everywhere. Like God is with us right now in this very room. He's eternal, he is the Alpha and Omega, he is the beginning and the end. He is meek and humble and just and righteous, and, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. Have you ever asked yourself, like, when did God begin? Genesis chapter 1 states that in the beginning, God was there. Have you ever considered that the Father is completely uncreated? Everything else in all of existence, from the smallest atomic structure to the most powerful angelic being, is created. But God, Jesus, is in a completely other class on its own. He's uncreated, he has no beginning, he is eternally powerful and eternally wise. This is our God. I want to jump ahead and and look at the book of Revelation. If you've ever read the book of Revelation or try to open up Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament, it's quite a crazy, wild book. But what we have here is we have the Apostle John, who's the author of this book, and To set the scene, John has been supernaturally transported by the Spirit into heaven. He's getting a glimpse of what heaven is like. And as John looks into heaven, the first thing he sees is a throne. And then he starts to describe the one who's seated on the throne. Now, before I just jump off and start going through what that looks like, if you've read Revelation or if you're familiar with it at all, it's really weird and really strange language, and you think, like, what is going on here? But the way to imagine it is if you were trying to explain to somebody something that they're completely unfamiliar with, and so what you do is you take metaphors and uh, maybe some pictures or things that they are familiar with in order to describe the thing that they're not familiar with, right? Make sense? So John is taking first century uh, metaphors and pictures to try and describe this unfamiliar heavenly scene that is before him. And and this is what we read in Revelation chapter 4. John, he's trying to use the familiar objects from a first century world. And and he says, the one seated on a throne is like Jasper stone and Sardis stone. Jasper stone is the ancient equivalent of a diamond. He's saying, the one on the throne is exquisite. He is beautiful. Like, my, I'm just drawn towards him. Infinite beauty, infinite value. Just, I, I, I cannot get enough of how perfect and exquisite and beautiful the one on the throne is. And Sardis stone, now Sardis stone is red. It's fiery. It's describing like, so he's, he's saying, on this throne is this beauty and this, this majesty, and I just, I want to be near it, but it's scary. It's fiery. It's red. It's, 
and, and, there's, and then he starts to say there's a rainbow around the throne. And the rainbow is one uh, imagery that God would use for his promises of his goodness. And, and as this rainbow is around the throne, it says it's like emeralds that surround the throne. So there's this beautiful scene of color and beauty and wonder and full of promise, but it's scary because God is magnificent and powerful and bigger than what I could ever imagine. These gemstones, they're beautiful in the natural, but the beauty of God transcends what we can see with our natural eyes. His beauty is the completion of all of his perfections, and it's the product of his nature, his very being. God is this blinding light of holiness, and he's an all-consuming fire of love and jealousy, and he's overflowing with covenantal mercy towards us. He is beautiful, and he is burning, and he is merciful. This mercy, it's clearly demonstrated as John describes the scene that surrounds the throne because there's 24 elders. And these 24 elders, actually you and me, and and they're seated on thrones as well, which is mind-blowing because they're wearing robes and they're wearing crowns. They're invited as rulers with God in his kingdom. And they're crowned as priests and kings and covered in robes of righteousness. God does not give us what we deserve, but rather what has been won over for us in Christ. And when we awaken to the revelation of who he is, who is Jesus, and, and, and who we are and our place before God, honestly, I believe that prayer and encounter with Jesus will erupt across this earth. The book of Revelation, it does not describe the glory and the greatness of God the Father alone. In fact, immediately as you open page one of Revelation in chapter one, before we get to this throne room scene, we see and we read a description of Jesus. And that description reveals the divine glory of the Son. In Revelation chapter 1, John hears a voice like a trumpet. And when he sees the source of this voice, he beholds a man standing among seven lampstands. His hair is white, it represents wisdom. His garments represent his, his calling as the high priest. His eyes are eyes of fire and zeal and jealousy and love. And his feet, they're bronze. And they represent his opposition towards unrighteousness. He has a sword that's coming out of his mouth, which represents the power of the word of God. His voice itself is creative in power. In his hands, he holds seven stars as he nurtures, the, nurtures and fulfills all of the prophets and promises from the Old Testament. John is so overwhelmed by the beauty and glory of this man that he falls down at his feet as one that is dead. Friends, we're not supposed to ask the question, who is Jesus, and then come up with a whole bunch of kind of analytical answers to satisfy my own needs. When we ask the question, who is Jesus, we're supposed to come to somebody who is so beautiful and so wonderful and so merciful and so overwhelming that he completely overwhelms my heart. So I believe there's a question, and it's the most important question anybody could ever ask you. And it's a question I believe Jesus asks us today. It's a question he asks his disciples. 
He asked them this question 2,000 years ago, and I believe for some he could be asking you this today. Who do you say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But who do you say? But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You see, so many people are so content to listen to what other people say about who Jesus is. But what other people say about who Jesus is should merely just be the catalyst from which we go on our own journey of exploration to find out who is Jesus to me. This is why Jesus asked the disciples, he said, like, what do other people say about me? What are other people saying I am? Or who do they say I am? Because he wanted them to wrestle over whether or not they were basing their faith on what other people were saying or of a personal revelation. It's as if Jesus was saying, hey, are you living your life through the words of another man or a woman, or have you grappled with your beliefs for yourself? Have you come to your own conclusion about who I am? Because then Jesus asks the second question. He says, but who do you say I am? Simon responds immediately with the confession. He says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. Simon the fisherman, who has no education, he has even less wisdom, he releases the revelation of who this man is, of who Jesus is. And Jesus declares, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, he's saying, hey, Simon, you didn't get this at the Who Do You Say I Am conference. You know, this isn't like, you did not get this from another man or another woman. My father has revealed this to you. It doesn't matter how many teachings we listen to, how many anointed speakers we, you know, or preachers we listen to, or how well we can parrot or mimic about what other people say about Jesus or things that we've heard, only the Father can reveal the Son to us. And Jesus replies, he says, Blessed are you, son, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is saying, hey, the revelation of who I am is what I'm going to build my church upon. If you can answer the question, who is Jesus? He is my Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. Can I invite the band to come up? As the band make their way up and we close up and hopefully enter into a time where we can respond to Jesus, I want us to notice that when Simon received the revelation of who Jesus is, Jesus actually turns the table on him. Jesus says, now that you know who I am, let me tell you who you are. Simon turns into Peter at the revelation of Jesus. And so it'll be for every single one of us as we go on this journey of receiving the revelation of who is Jesus. 
And not who is Jesus to Brian or who is Jesus to Benji or who is Jesus to, who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that I am? Many believers in the church today are so obsessed with like, finding our identity, but only those who find the Son will find out who they truly are and what they were created to be. Because we cannot separate our identity from the knowledge of God, and we cannot separate the knowledge of God from actually getting into His presence, being intimate with Him, building relationship with Him as we pray. Many believers, I believe, experience identity crises, like, who am I, and what am I supposed to do with my life, and that's why prayer becomes so difficult because we don't know who we're connecting with or what we're connecting with or how we're doing this thing. And I believe it's because we're trying to find all of the answers to all of this outside of God. But as Peter discovered, if we know who he is, then he will tell us who we are and then we will be able to step into his presence and pray. And it's in that place that we will find joy and peace and life and fullness, and purpose, and meaning. So I want to tell you this morning, if you're trying to find yourself in anything other than Jesus, or if you're trying to answer the question, who is Jesus, with intellectual ideas, I just want to invite you to come away with Him by yourself and get some rest. One of the great truths that's manifest for us at the cross of Christ is just how much God loves you. Like, honestly, do you have any idea how much God loves you? He's desperate to be in your presence. Just like Shelby, he'll break down walls. He'll, he'll climb into, under your bed before you get there. He'll also go to the cross and he'll suffer and he'll die. That's how much he wants to be with you. He loves you so much that rather than losing you, he takes on your form, he lives your life, he died your death, he places his spirit inside of you so that you can be with him forevermore. And so the source and foundation of prayer, of being with Jesus, of becoming like Jesus, of doing the things that he did, of living the way of Jesus is just finding ourselves in the knowledge that God delights in you. And the revelation that we are His beloved bride, that will be the foundation upon which you can build the rest of your life. Come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Who is Jesus? He is the beauty of God that will overwhelm your heart if you'll just open up yourself to Him. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. <laughs>